Mr. Tumnus, a fawn from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia fantasy series, may have a book whose title asks, Is Man a Myth? Yet Christians have articles and sometimes books that ask questions like, How can Lewis's stories help your kids? And they skip over the adults. That's one of several myths that we're going to explore about the Chronicles of Narnia. We are discovering some deep magic today as we explore at least seven myths or start to explore them. This one and a total of seven myths about C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. This is Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven. As you may know, in this podcast, we find the best of Christian fantasy and we find truth in these amazing stories. And we apply this truth to the real world that our creator and savior, Jesus Christ, has called us to serve. I am Eastimer Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven. And I'm Zachary Russell. But if you've just arrived here from Care Paravel, I go by Zach. And this is episode 24. How do we defeat the top seven myths about the Chronicles of Narnia? And this is part one. We will explore all kinds of myths today, so hang on. At least these are the myths that I've chosen, the ones that I have perceived uh, growing up with these books and then interacting with many other people who are familiar with them or who have read the Seven Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Because each one is fairly intricate, uh, we've actually split this episode into two, and we're going to explore only about uh, half of these myths in this episode. That will continue in the next episode, episode 25. And if you're new to the podcast, you can subscribe on just about every major podcast platform. We're also on YouTube. And we try to make this show interactive. So send us your thoughts about whatever you have thoughts about today to podcast at lorehaven.com. And we got some really great feedback, Stephen, about our UFO episode last time. So we're going to share that at the end. And by the way, as we record this, uh, so this is today, Saturday, July 11th, as we record this, and the History Channel just released season two of Unidentified. And this is the show that mostly is about investigations into military UFO encounters, all the, the famous Navy pilot UFO videos were a major feature of season one. And Stephen, here's something really interesting. The trailer for this season featured a veteran who fought in Afghanistan. And he said he saw a UFO with his night vision goggles. And he just describes it in just very bizarre things that this was doing. But here's the thing. After the encounter, he says, quote, I'm a person of faith, but I would be lying if I said that wasn't a faith shaker for me. End quote. So to our listener, that is why we discuss UFOs. Uh, it's a great way to look at what is our, how does our faith inform, you know, real life fantastical stories. And today we're going to talk about the real life fantastical myths about a fantastical uh, treasure of a story, which is the Chronicles of Narnia. So we are going to go into that land today. Yes, indeed. This is a magical land where you won't find a secret testing of a previously unknown Afghan military or uh, airborne technology. Uh, Zach, as I said, I grew up with these stories. Uh, I, actually, my parents uh, gave me the book set uh, when I was age 10, I believe. And one thing I remember is being very bothered by the fact that uh, one of the books had the word witch in the title. I, I thought mm -hmm. we didn't do witches. What's going on here? Of course, you know, regardless of how you feel about magic or 
witches or magic users in stories. In this case of the witch was the white witch, who is a bad witch, the villain of the piece. Zach, what has been your experience then in discovering the Chronicles or sharing them with your kids or friends or family? Yeah, so it's mostly been rediscovering them through my kids. So we we bought the the whole box set of the paperback books a few years ago, and our oldest two kids have read through all of them. My wife has read through the whole series multiple times, and uh, I, I love the movies. I've, I've watched the, all three movies just many, many, many times. So right now I'm I'm reading uh, Prince Caspian, or I should say, I'm stuck in that book, just like I'm stuck in eight other books. So listener, one thing you'll learn about me is that I like to start a lot of books. I'm not so great at finishing them. And but I really like the movie for Prince Caspian. I, it's one of my favorite all time movies, and it's it's because of that line when Peter says, "We've waited for Aslan long enough. It's up to us now." Yeah, it's not in the book. I mean, the Prince Caspian right. film, we all know it's very different from the book because structurally the book would be difficult to adapt for film, yeah. probably more than the others. But as a story on its own, it's not bad. You know, even giving Peter that flaw, that crisis of faith. And I think yeah. they dealt with it the, the best way they knew how. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just, I relate to that so much. Um, I mean, it's in an unfortunate way, but I can completely relate to that. Yeah, so I I love the movies. I'm looking forward to finishing all the books <laughs> one of these days, just like I'll finish all the other books I'm reading. But no, uh, my, my kids love the books. Um, what's really cool to see is how many people I know who have read those books with their kids, whether or not they are Christians themselves. It's such a universally loved series. And you know, I, I read at least a few of these a long time ago when I was in elementary school. So, you know, they've been kind of swirling around uh, in, in my world for a long, long time. Okay, so let's talk about our first myth, or this is rather number seven out of our seven myths. The Chronicles show random myths. So tell us about this, Stephen. Yeah, this is a more uh, academic idea. If you get into the, uh, the internet or even some of the scholarship about Lewis's intent, you'll occasionally find some confusion about what what's going on here's a a professor of medieval uh uh, literature and languages why did he suddenly start writing children's stories wow this is really random and and it goes something like this uh c.s lewis not like his uh his friend uh, professor j.r.r tolkien uh, was mostly messing around in his world making lewis throws in all these greek creatures uh, just the grab bag of mythological figures from uh, greek uh, myths uh, plus uh, some elements from other pantheons at random. And scholars basically compare one to the other, and they say, well, presuming that Tolkien did it the right way, I mean, I'm not sure how you describe the right way, because Lewis and Tolkien were doing some very new things using old myths themselves, but they presume that Tolkien's Middle-earth is the epitome of fantasy world-building. It's high fantasy, and Lewis kind of has this uh, this low fantasy, this... um more uh, amateurish attempt and it's just random lewis is throwing everything in including the kitchen sink it's fun they say they're not trying to be critical sometimes but wow this is this is really random so there's just not a lot of rhyme or reason to the chronicles of narnia separately or together so goes the myth yeah so when i watch the lion witch in the wardrobe in theaters and then you know later on dvd or whatever i couldn't get over father christmas just showing up 
uh, seemingly at random and giving them all these presents. I mean, it's fun. It's like, hey, you get a sword, you get a bow, all this kind of stuff. But I, I just kind of brushed it off like, what, what a cheap way to pander to an American audience that loves Santa Claus. And Oh, I, that's funny. So, so you yeah. hadn't read the book at that point when you saw the, the film, uh, the 2005 uh, Walt, Walt and Disney film? Yeah, well, again, I, I must have read the book uh, way too long ago to really remember it. Oh, I see. And, and then, uh, then, so then a few years ago when we got the the box set and started reading with our kids, I'm like, oh my goodness, Father Christmas is in the book. <laughs> I thought that was just... Uh, so it, it, but but even then, it kind of bothered me because I'm like, wait, so Lewis intentionally put this in here? Wait, why? Oh, he absolutely did. Well, think about it from a child's perspective, and and my perspective was basically this: is that a fawn, uh, any of those mythological creatures, uh, water gods and nymphs and naiads and well spirits and all of that? Those are the alien entities, or at least were the unknown entities to me, because it's not like I grew up studying a lot of Greek mythology or uh, Greek legends. But Santa Claus, or Father Christmas, because I knew he went by a few different titles, uh, that was the kingpin of mythological figures. A seasonal arriver bringing good gifts, uh, spreading the joy of, I would say, in the right perspective, spreading the joy of, of Christ at Christ's birthday. I loved Father Christmas and it made it didn't weird me out seeing him come in there. But I can understand now that people think, wow, that's that's really random, you know, and and pandering. Yeah, but it also is very <laughs> accessible. You know, it's also writing in plain English could be said to be pandering. But if Narnia is the world where all these legends come to life, it just makes sense that you have maybe a more modern figure arrive. Yeah, well, and I was coming off of the Tolkien movies and, you know, reading The Wheel of Time and just all this high fantasy. And so Narnia just seemed, oh, this is for children or whatever. But um, I'll deal with that one in just a few more minutes later. Yes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Setting up for that. But again, it it worked perfectly for the story. So I I really come to I really love that scene now because, again, my kids love that scene in, in the books and in the movies. So but let's talk about this this book that sort of analyzes Narnia from a kind of a meta level. This is a book called Planet Narnia by Michael Ward. I ran across this book, Stephen, last year in Half Price Books and started talking to some people about it that have read it. And um, one friend of mine, um, Daniel Ray, who runs the Good Heavens podcast, he said he, he, I think he wrote his dissertation or master's thesis on Michael Ward's book. So that, that, that's what really woke me up. Oh, this is like serious stuff. I thought it was just something random in a bookstore. So um, I haven't read it yet, but I know you've read it. So tell me about what Michael Ward covers in Planet Narnia. Oh, I have I have read it and then gone back to read my favorite parts. Uh, Ward takes seriously the idea that the Chronicles of Narnia is first a serious literary work that is worthy of this level of analysis. You know, the Oxford level. I mean, those were the circles in which Lewis worked and lived and breathed. And so it, it is a matter of respect to analyze everything that Lewis writes from that vantage. And of course, uh, Ward's book, uh, Planet Narnia, what, what's that about? Like, oh, Narnia is another planet now? We'll describe the premise in a moment. Whether or not one agrees with what Ward writes, I think the greatest benefit he offers then, even if you disagree, think that it's some kind of silly conspiracy or something, the greatest benefit that Ward offers is just by seriously engaging with the Chronicles by supposing that, no, this is not some throwaway project of Lewis's that just happened to catch fire uh, in the 1950s and beyond. 
Uh, this is a serious work that Lewis was doing and that hidden in the simplicity of each of the Chronicles is actually several key or even a single key unifying theme that goes deep into who Lewis was and what Lewis believed and what he spent his lifetime studying. In short, uh, Ward offers a theory about each of the seven chronicles, seven being an important number there. Of course, we also have our seven myths here, so honoring that as well. He believes that Lewis, who was a, a scholar of medieval literature and languages, was influenced by overarching myths from medieval uh, history and literature. These myths are centered on the seven worlds or spheres of medieval cosmology. Uh, that is before we had telescopes and people were looking out at the stars and they would try to figure out what they were looking at. They realized that obviously certain celestial bodies did not move like the stars did. And they associated names and mythological figures, gods and colors and images and many creative expressions with each of these seven celestial bodies. I uh, believe they are from Mercury to Saturn and then also including soul or sun and Luna or moon. So let's see how it goes. It goes soul and sun, Mercury, Venus, that's four, uh, Earth itself not being included there, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. So a total yeah, of, of seven, seven there. Mm -hmm. Ward goes through each of the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, first he actually starts off exploring Lewis's other works, nonfiction and fiction. Uh, Ward spends a lot of time in Lewis's Ransom Trilogy, which is also called the Cosmic Trilogy or Space Trilogy which is way more overt, obviously, about these celestial bodies because right. his hero, Dr. Ransom, is actually journeying to Mars, uh, Mars and yes, yeah. and, and Venus, yes. In that series, Lewis is explicit about the idea uh, that there, there are actually angelic rulers of these planets and the idea that each one of these planets has its theme or influence on the story. Ward also then goes through Lewis's book, The Discarded Image, which is about the uh, medieval conception of the universe kind of that unifying idea that medieval uh, teachers and scholars had of the world. And he, then Ward goes through each of the Chronicles of Narnia and says, hey, I think I've found a unifying medieval sphere cosmology-based theme in each one of these. He says, for example, the line which in wardrobe feels very Jovian. That is, uh, it's influenced by the ideas of Jupiter. Uh, mm. Jupiter in medieval literature was associated with joy with victory, with kingliness, the good kind, and with images of summer. And all this, according to Ward, and he quotes lots of stuff in there. You know, some of it's over my head, but I could actually manage to follow it some. A lot of those ideas were just began to be associated with Jupiter or Jove in medieval literature. Uh, another example is that uh, Prince Caspian is very Martian. Lots of battle going on in there. Uh, lots of warfare and conflict. And of course, there's warfare and conflict in other chronicles, but Ward is asking, okay, but which of the books is mostly defined by this kind of influence? And Ward says the horse and his boy feels very Mercurian, almost to a fault. There's images of silver and quicksilver and elements, by the way. Mineral elements were also associated with the medieval, uh, the medieval spheres, the medieval influences. Uh, Jove, for example, is associated with gold and uh, Mercury with silver or, or Quicksilver. And of course, there's a lot of speed and running, uh, much like a, a Greek messenger god in the horse and his boy. Some of that can feel pretty esoteric, uh, and, and Ward, I think, deals pretty well with some of the objections. And of course, 
the biggest objection I had going in is like, wait a minute, the Chronicles of Narnia, each one is about so much more than just uh, Greek or Roman uh, mythology or, or medieval um, ideas that are associated. And Ward says, of, of course they are. But Lewis, mm-hmm. this is who he was. This is what he lived and breathed and studied. And he may not have even at first intentionally meant to let these themes influence mm. his stories. But it, it seems apparent that he eventually may have found it out on his own. I mean, if, if you've ever created something, then you may go back over it and look and go, whoa, where did that come from? Almost feels like I didn't write it. Uh, if you're deep into the scripture, for example, and you write a story, you're going to find that uh, you're being influenced by some biblical ideas. And of course, uh, again, there's some challenges. Of Someone may say, by Jove, in, uh, in the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, but then they say it elsewhere, you know? So Jove's influence, Jupiter's influence. It's not a hard influence. and fast rule. Yeah, it's yeah. a not hard, fast rule, but that's because, you know, together uh, those medieval influences are, are affecting all of the Chronicles, but mm-hmm. there's a particular one that seems to come out in each one. I'm persuaded that Ward is right, and probably the greatest proof I can remember is the fact that uh, there's actually an old draft for the final Chronicle of Narnia, the last battle, the seventh one there. Ward says it seems pretty clear that the last battle is influenced by Saturn, images of aging, time running out. Uh, Saturn is associated with Father Time, and of course, Father Time himself makes an appearance at the end of the last battle and has a pivotal role in the Narnian apocalypse. But the greatest proof there is that it, in, in this old draft, it doesn't say Father Time, it says Saturn. So oh. Saturn is actually there making a cameo. And then, of course, though, Saturn, his influence uh, does not dominate at the end of the story. Uh, ultimately, the whole, uh, the whole Saturnine uh, uh, concept is, is, is overturned because Narnia does not age and die. Time does not run out. Narnia begins anew as, as our heroes are drawn into the newer and better Narnia. Well, it makes sense that all of this would be intentional, that Lewis didn't just throw things in randomly, although he you know, he loved myths, he loved mythologies, and um, I, I love the story of how he was converted to Christianity, and then later he reflect on it and saying, uh, so this is a quote I pulled up where he says, quote, now the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened, end quote. You know, and he talks about how um, the, the myths that man made were, you know, man trying to find God or, or God sort of working in their imaginations, but Christianity is God himself expressing what are, what, what's true and what's real. And, but that whole idea that, that he loved the story of Christ as a myth, and then he just had to take the next step and say, wait a minute, this is the true myth. This is the story that actually happened. And he did something interesting, Stephen. He didn't just throw away his love for other ancient myths. And you know, this is just, just to get a little personal for a second, this is something I did. When when I became a Christian, I just kind of got rid of fantasy and fiction and just like, yeah, I don't really want to deal with all this stuff. I just want to read the Bible. Yeah. And you might need to for a while. It may be necessary. Like we don't know whether Lewis felt that he had to, I mean, obviously long-term he didn't, but you know, listener, you may have to throw these away. We're not saying, oh, you can have Jesus and then everything you liked before too. Like, no, that stuff needs to be transformed or rejected if it can't be transformed. Yeah. Well, and then there's that, that passage in Acts where, where they burned all their magic scrolls after they, be, they became believers. And so a lot of Christians have, uh, 
I've taken inspiration from that. We don't need to get into that, but yeah, but I, I love that Lewis saw connecting lines between the things that he loved and how God worked through those things to draw him to Christ, the true myth. So it, it makes sense that he would want to do the same thing with his books, like kind of weave these mythologies together to point people to Aslan, to point people to Christ, because this is all, you know, this is all God's world that we live in. And so in all, all truth is God's truth. So I, I think it's pretty clear. It's not just a bunch of random things that just, he just threw in kind of willy nilly. No, it's, it's not. And then even if, even if Ward is uh, over speculating and uh, any influence from the, the medieval myths were just at the back and you know, didn't actually come forward to influence each particular chronicle, Lewis's big idea is the greatest influence of all. It is the Lord, the God who created all of these celestial bodies who thereby influence others. It is a big idea in Lewis's thinking, obviously in his nonfiction and in his Ransom trilogy, but definitely in Narnia. The world building assumption here is that in Narnia, all these fantasy creatures, fawns and satyrs and you know, talking lions and unicorns, they all do really exist. And so do lesser beings who are somehow or other called gods. But the big idea is that Aslan is the absolute king. His sovereignty is unquestioned. He is the creator. All good creatures acknowledge that and serve him without question or almost without question. Every creature is uh, every creature is being made to bow and every tongue confesses that Aslan is the king of beasts. That's the greatest idea. That's the greatest unifying influence in the Chronicles of Narnia that before Christ, all mythological creatures say, hail to the king, you know, by Aslan's mane, you know, take the adventure that Aslan sends us. And I think, Zach, among at least some of these secular scholars and maybe a few Christians, uh, I think some of this largest influence, this divine influence in the story may be lost if you do not get the central role of Aslan, uh, where the Narnia movies, even, for example, at the popular level, they get better when they understand that Aslan is the chief hero of the story, even if you don't see him. And when they lose sight of that fact, uh, the storytelling suffers a bit, uh, particularly for the first audience of the Chronicles of Narnia. The primary audience is children, but don't stop there. We'll talk about that in a moment. This makes sense to show that Aslan is the king. Anything, anything that's good is going to be good because it or that creature is serving Aslan. And to get that idea from a young age and then have it seep down into your subconscious, uh, that is a fantastic good for those who would uh, then love Jesus more because of what Lewis has communicated. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and back to Father Christmas for a second. Uh, my wife's favorite line in the line which in the wardrobe is when he says, long live Aslan. And, you know, I, I kind of smirked when that happened in the movie because I'm like, oh, I see. This is Christians trying to win the culture war that, you know, Santa Claus bows down to Jesus. And that's, oh, that's the true funny. meaning of Christmas. Like, again, because I, I, I love I that ornament, though. I love the <laughs> ornament with Santa kneeling in front of the manger. It is so kitschy, but yeah. oh, deep in there is an amazing truth. And it's what Lewis was pursuing. Yeah. And I, and I love that. I love that his his point was so much deeper than just the Christmas wars or whatever. But you touched on something really important there that, you know, that he wrote this for children. So are these, so this is our number six myth that the Chronicles are just children's stories. There's a great quote by Lewis where he says, someday you will be old enough 
to read fairy tales again. And I, I love that idea behind Lewis that fairy tale. So I, I'm kind of, you know, I'm just defeating that myth right here. But yeah, th- this is definitely how I felt about the Chronicles of Narnia for a long time. I just thought, eh, yeah, that that was a fun movie and I'm sure the books would be good, but uh, they're just kind of for my kids or, you know, I'll read the adult stuff or I'll read the serious stuff or whatever. So what what do you say to this one, Stephen? Well, I do say that some Christian grownups have a little bit more growing up to do. Uh, that's, uh, that is a myth to say, oh, the Chronicles of Narnia are just for kids or even fantasy is for kids. And I see this assumption at the back of even some complimentary articles or books or Christian materials about the Chronicles of Narnia. They just, they love them. They endorse them. They rave about Lewis's genius for the kids. And it, it is that little myth there that is totally opposed to Lewis's thinking that fantasy is for kids and adults need realistic stories. Oddly enough, that's a very screw tape idea. Lewis is satirical uh, devil uh, who writes letters infamously, including some fake ones on the internet, but the real ones are so much better. Screw tape is such a practical, pragmatic, grown up, austere, serious person, serious devil. He has no time for flights of fantasy or enjoyment for its own sake, which is really for God's sake. So, you might want to watch out if you're assuming some pragmatic idea that fantasy is for kids that Screwtape would have just loved. Uh, <laughs> you already read one quote from Lewis. He not only implicitly but explicitly rejected this myth and his keystone quote, which is a real quote, by the way, and it is found in the book on three ways of writing for children. Actually, that's an essay uh, collected in the book of Other Worlds. Lewis wrote, quote, Critics who treat adult as a term of approval instead of as a merely descriptive term cannot be adult themselves. To be concerned about being grown up, to admire the grown up because it is grown up, to blush at the suspicion of being childish, these things are the marks of childhood and adolescence. And in childhood and adolescence, they are in moderation healthy symptoms. Young things ought to want to grow. But to carry on into middle life or even into early manhood, this concern about being adult is a mark of really arrested development. When I was 10, I read fairy tales in secret and would have been ashamed if I had been found doing so. Now that I am 50, I read them openly. When I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. End quote. Notice there Lewis's little uncredited reference to the Apostle Paul there. Is when we become uh, mature. I mean, man also means woman there. It's a reference to humankind. Uh, the truly mature person is less concerned about looking very grown up. You know, a, a mature person can hug their parents, whereas the stereotypical teenager at the mall is like, oh, mom, get away. You're embarrassing me. Which one is the more mature approach? I think Lewis is very clear about his opinion here. This is something I've, I've always connected with, with Lewis about because there's a type of person that that takes this quote when i became a man i put away childish things and says well that means you can't enjoy anything you enjoyed as a kid and well okay yes my my kids love to eat candy and i would much rather have chicken fried steak okay but th- there's something much more central here which is that when you're a kid you're always growing you're always asking questions. You're always learning. 
And this is something that I aspire to as an adult, as a 40-year-old adult, is that I want to always be learning, never content that I've learned everything, and not be afraid to ask questions. When you're a kid, you just always raise your hand and say, I have a question about that. And actually, I was was kind of that kid that would always raise his hand and ask questions. And I don't want to stop being that way because what does that say if you've stopped learning? Yeah, you don't grow any taller, but you really can't grow anymore intellectually. Like I just reject the idea that adulthood means that every way that you were as a kid is over because the most important thing is to keep learning and to keep discovering things. You know, one of the reasons why I love astronomy, Stephen, is that there's so much to discover. There's like a a Twitter feed of uh, astronomy or or NASA's uh, picture of the day from the Hubble Space Telescope. Man, we will never see enough out there that God has made in the universe. And there's so much to discover everywhere, especially through his word. So childlike faith and reception of wonder is essential to growing as a Christian. Exactly. I mean, what you've outlined there is is almost a, a, a secular response to that idea. It doesn't make sense, even if you're not a Christian, especially when, even if you're trying to be very grown up and very successful, if you look at some of the most successful entrepreneurs, sometimes they are the most childlike in some ways, uh, not just in their social media presence, but just in their sense of curiosity and even some whimsy in there. And I'm sure some of that is calculated in order to get headlines and uh, be a little bit outrageous, get some attention and thereby draw more attention to your business. But when we go to scripture, the idea of being childlike in certain ways is even stronger. Uh, It's not just a Lewis idea or a common sense idea, but a biblical idea. Jesus himself endorsed that spirit of childlike faith, not intelligence, not your knowledge of facts or wisdom. The Bible also endorses wisdom, but childlike faith. You have a mind like an adult. You are growing. You are not just stopping at the milk of the gospel, but moving on to solid food, as the New Testament says later. But you still have that heart of a child, that humility of a child. You are open to wonder. You are open to accept something that a trusted authority, Christ himself, has told you. It's essential to growing as a Christian. And that leads not just from receiving biblical truth, but receiving good creations at the imaginative level, like the Chronicles of Narnia. So for anyone who says, I read Narnia as a kid, I guess, I guess it was okay. I don't really remember. The whole thing's kind of a blur. Read it again. Be blessed. Like all those people who rhapsodize about Lewis, oh, it gets so much better when you get older. Um, They're not just making it up. It is. A, it's true. All of it. Really, it is. Go read Narnia again, not just for kids. And that's so that's so great because, yeah, again, we get stuck in this idea. Well, I've already read that, been there, done that. There's there's other things to do now. Uh, my 10 year old daughter, she reads the same books over and over and over again, and she loves to read them as fast as possible. Like uh, we're, we're getting a book coming in the mail today. I'm sure she'll have it read by the time she goes to bed, but then she'll just pick it up again tomorrow and reread it because why not? You know, why not just enjoy the things that you want to enjoy? And, you know, Stephen, you mentioned, I, I don't know if you were thinking of this directly, but you, you made me think of something is that Warren Buffett and Elon Musk, they read like a book a day or a book a week or a couple books a week or something like that. And I, I always think about that, that here's these guys 
with extremely busy jobs, extreme amounts of pressure and responsibility, and they take time to read all the time, like every single day. And do you think they're just yeah. reading manuals about Bezhnesh and <laughs> politics and stuff? Like, no, I'm pretty sure that at least, uh, at least Elon Musk is a big geek. So, hey, listener, if you want to yep. be like Elon Musk, then read Narnia. But even better, if you want to be like Jesus, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an argument of the lesser to the greater. If it's yeah. beneficial to you as a person to imitate these successful people, how much more so is it necessary to, to imitate uh, Christ and the childlike spirit that he encourages? Well, let's go to myth number five. There's only one reading order, and it's chronological. So tell us about this, Stephen. Oh, this is funny. Because I until I got to narniaweb.com, which is still going, they just revamped their site for this uh, this next decade. Uh, they started, I guess it was about two, th- yeah, it was, it was in the early 2000s when there were rumors, whispers of a, a big budget uh, film version of the Chronicles of Narnia and they got it started. Uh, they started a forum that's still very active. I was a king, well, a moderator really on that forum. And I suppose mm-hmm. then once, once a king or queen on Narnia web, always a king or queen <laughs> on Narnia web that proved a controversial topic at the forum. And I hadn't even thought of it before, but then I looked at the new version of the, uh, of the Chronicles in the, in how they're published. And I thought, wait a minute, the, the numbers are all wrong. And this is why it's, it's a myth. And I'd say that it's a myth only insofar as we say there's only one correct reading order and it's the chronological one. Like, well, you can choose your reading order. You are a free spirit. But Lewis originally wrote them in a different order. It's the line in which Nor Job, Prince Caspian, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the Silver Chair, the Horse and His Boy, the Magician's Nephew, and the Last Battle. The publisher numbers them differently, though, because technically the magician's nephew uh, in chronological order is the prequel. So, it's the, yeah, it's it, like book zero or whatever. So you're supposed yeah. to read that before the, the line in which mm. in the wardrobe, and then you have to read the horse and his boy after the line in which in the wardrobe, even though it takes place in the middle of the line in which in the wardrobe, mm. like somewhere in the middle of all the summaries about the kings and queens reigning in Narnia in the, I think, the final chapter. I ignore uh, the chronological mm-hmm. order numbering. I actually. I resort them in my package, uh, like in my box set. I'm I'm one of those people who do that. Uh, but the folks who kind of get a little too up into this myth will say, well, Lewis himself wanted it this way. And, and we have evidence, and, and here we go. And I say, well, we'll get into that in a moment. But I, I think we can classify it as a surprisingly prevalent myth that the only way you're supposed to read it is chronological because of reason. This comes up all the time with the Marvel movies, like, oh, wait, which, which order am I supposed to watch it in? And so you know, we've been doing that with our kids, like trying to find the right, right whatever. Do you think it's a particular order. personality type that just wants to you know, sort things? I mean, God gives people different gifts oh, yeah. and the colloquial left brain, like I've got to classify. I must form a zoological system. I must make a tree. I must put everything according <laughs> to kind and color and uh, order of importance. So I think about this with the Wheel Time series, my favorite fantasy series. There are 14 books, 15 books, I can't even remember now. And there was a prequel that came out called New Spring. And it, I don't know when that actually came out, it, between book five and six or nine and 10. I don't even remember. So now I, like, I was re-read, I'm rereading the whole series. And I just picked that one up first because I'm like, well, it's book zero. So I might as well just read it first just because i can't remember when he published it and i could probably find it out but it just makes it a little bit easier to to look at it that way i think 
the fact that they're repackaging these in different ways than Lewis intended. And, and, you know, we know how he intended it. That does get kind of tricky because then what, then, then whose directives are you following? So you, you mentioned that there's, there's some more on Narnia web about this. Why don't you tell me about that? There is, and we will link to this article in the show notes. Uh, again, I was once a moderator at Narnia Web. They are the finest, most trusted web source about all things Chronicles of Narnia, including the books of absolutely the books. The books will always be with us. The now old movies from uh, Walden uh, Media uh, back in the late 2000s. And then also, if they ever get anywhere with this Netflix adaptation, uh, we will be all over that too, or they will be at Narnia Web. So yeah, I said we. I still consider myself a part of it, even though I'm mall wrapped up in Lorehaven and uh, my fiction and nonfiction works now. But uh, they put together this article from which I'll quote about the, the reading order. They say, quote, for many years, both orders were in print. American editions used publication order, while British editions were numbered chronologically. Chronological order became the worldwide standard after HarperCollins took over the publishing in 1994, a little bit later. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first book to be written and published, is generally considered the best introduction to Narnia by scholars and fans alike. Quote within a quote, most scholars disagree with, that is the decision to renumber the books, and find it the least faithful to Lewis's deepest intentions. End quote, says Dr. Paul F. Ford, author of Companion to Narnia. On the official website of C.S. Lewis, Dr. Charlie W. Starr claims that, quote, Lewis scholars almost universally agree, end quote that the original published order is superior. He suggests that The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is more initially captivating than The Magician's Nephew, true, that certain lines in Lion do not make sense when the book is not read first, and that Nephew has greater mythic power when read as a prequel. End quote. I agree with all that stuff. It's a little bit more subjective at the last there, but again, you're presuming this is the first time that you read The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, You can swap the reading order later if you want to like i'll I'll just grab one (laughs) if i think about it you know don't have to read them all at once anyway but zach the biggest though point is that uh people who say there's only one reading order and it's chronological they say well this is what lewis actually wanted they have a letter there is a letter in which lewis uh, suggests that okay sure you can read it that way lewis wrote thousands probably ten thousands of letters in his lifetime there are three huge manhattan old phone directory sized uh, paperback books just full of Lewis's letters. He he wow. wrote way more letters than he ever wrote anything else. So that means you can make him say a lot of things, and and it's it's not a deception. It's just uh, overvaluing a letter over the original publication order. Uh, Narnie Webb again quotes uh, Lewis's letter from 1957 to a single boy named Lawrence Craig, and uh, from their article they say quote. In 1957, an 11-year-old boy named Lawrence Craig was preparing to read the Narnia books for a second time. Lawrence wondered if he should reread them chronologically, but his mother felt he should stick with the original published order. So Lawrence wrote a letter to the author and received this response. Quote from Lewis, quote, I think I agree with your order for reading the books more than with your mother's. The series was not planned beforehand as she thinks. When I wrote The Lion, I did not know I was going to write any more. Then I wrote... Prince Caspian as a sequel and still didn't think there would be any more. And when I had done the voyage, I felt quite sure it would be the last. But I found as I was wrong. So perhaps it does not matter very much in which order anyone read them. End quote from Lewis. That's it. Uh, that's the only proof that Lewis wanted a chronological order. 
I think that these arguments do bust the myth of insisting on that order. Uh, if you're reading uh, The Magician's Nephew for the first time, it just makes more sense and there's more surprises if you've already read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe at least one time before that. Uh, that's not to say that the, you can't do the chronological order. It's a sin. This is all non-selfific stuff here. It's not important ultimately. Just don't listen to anybody who says, oh, this is the only order. If you want to resort them in your box set, do it. On the other side of this debate, by the way, apparently is Douglas Gresham, who is Lewis's uh, stepson and uh, kind of the shepherd of his literary legacy right now. He actually admits uh, in this article, they quote him uh, to, he admits, uh, yeah, I guess I kind of started that whole chronological order thing. So I might mildly disagree with him there, but we have at least two ways to read all the Narnia books once for the first time. I think you should do it the publication order just to follow the, uh, the creatives uh, uh, process there. But right now, like I said, I just read them any order, order I want. And uh, I think kids certainly can, uh, especially if it's the second or third time that they're enjoying this uh, fantasy world. Yeah, I'm just reading them in publication order. That's just what our box set is. But so just help me understand here, just to, to make it super clear to me and to our listeners who might be afraid to raise their hand and ask a question. Is the issue just about the magician's nephew, whether you read that first or last, or is there is there another one in the middle that... Uh, might be in a different order. Uh, the Horse and His Boy is book five. And uh, how, how it works is Lewis did actually a straight trilogy. And uh, according to Douglas Gresham, actually, at the end, I think of the uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader audio drama from Focus on the Family, he hosts that. I believe he actually says that Lewis originally may have just written the three books because then at the end of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, Aslan says that uh, uh, Edmund and Lucy, uh, the two younger children, they can no longer come to Narnia. They need to go back to Earth and learn to know Aslan better there by his other name. It's a it's a very neat conclusion to an initial trilogy. But then Lewis decided, you know, I've got some more ideas. So if you actually read The Silver Chair, which is book four, The Silver Chair is like Narnia: The Gritty Reboot. Uh, he breaks it down to the elements and uh, suddenly there's much less emphasis on the delights and the good pleasures of Narnia. Everything is a little bit more vague. There are gray areas everywhere. And actually, uh, the, uh, the possible mythological uh, influence on the silver chair is Luna, because the story is all about going mad and there's all kinds of pale things, almost to a fault. The moon is uh, famously pale, by the way. Silver chair is book four. But then Lewis interrupts the linear regression, and then he goes back into the golden age of Narnia, the world of the Lion, Wish, and the Wardrobe, and writes The Horse and His Boy, book five. Yeah. So where do you put that? And then Lewis does a prequel, the Narnian Genesis, called The Magician's Nephew, which uh, was originally book six. And after that, he's back onto, uh, the, the, back onto the chronological track with the mm -hmm. final volume, The Last Battle, which everyone agrees is book seven. So it's really about where do you put uh, the horse and his boy and where do you put the magician's nephew in the in the order of reading okay well that was our first three myths about the chronicles of narnia and we will cover the next four in part two of this series now we're going to go into our fantastic fans segment so steven i mentioned at the beginning that we've gotten a lot of replies uh since our ufo episode and we got one from Brian, who used our website to send us this note. Quote, 
I think that your worldview always shapes your interpretation of what is happening in the world. If you believe in the potential of aliens, you will look at UFOs as likely alien in nature. If you believe aliens are not possible, you will look at other potential sources for UFOs. I also think there is a big difference between life and sentient life in the discussion of aliens. At creation, humans were never intended to die. Had we stayed in that state, Earth would have quickly become overpopulated. We would have had to go somewhere. With that in mind, there has or had had to be life on other planets for us to be able to expand and not overburden Earth. I believe it was part of God's plan for us to expand into the cosmos and that there would be entire ecosystems on other planets for us to use when we go there. That doesn't mean there was necessarily sentient life. I think Christians can claim and rejoice in the idea that there is life on other planets, but I think we can also expect that we'll never find any life out there that is sentient, end quote. Yeah, thank you, Brian, for sending us that. That, that is definitely something I've thought about. It, it's something we're, as I mentioned, we're, we're very close to discovering as soon as the James Webb telescope launches in a, hopefully a year we'll be able to look into the atmospheres of other planets and see if there's any telltale signs of life. And actually, I just learned this last night. They are going to look for signs of intelligent life by looking for CFCs or other like industrial waste products in the atmospheres of exoplanets. That's about the extent to what we're going to be able to see this decade probably. But uh, yeah, I, I shared this as a very strong possibility that God made uh, vegetative life, maybe even animal life on other planets. It just brings us back to, well, what do you do with UFOs? Because something is happening. What that something is, if you want to explore the possibilities, go listen to episode 22. Well, they're not going to find any CFCs on other planets because all the other civilizations are so pristine. They've cleaned everything <laughs> up. They have attained a higher state of evolution, and they're not as filthy as this terrible human <laughs> race that we're stuck with here. Why can't we be more like them? I jest, but uh, I actually I love Brian's uh, feedback here, and not just because I think I agree with it 100 uh, percent, right down to his uh, division between sentient and non-sentient life. I think that's an important division to make if we're speculating about this, because if you have sentient life, you have morally reasoning creatures who are therefore accountable for their choices and have something like a soul. They're more human-like spiritually, even if not physically, if they're, you know, silicon-based beings or something. And that, that wreaks a little bit of a, a havoc with the basic biblical theology there. But animals, something like uh, the creation itself that groans because of humans' sin with humans still the moral representative god's regent of creation who has uh, rebelled against god and put the whole universe at risk uh, yeah i could i could totally go with that and how much more so plants and amoeba and you know other you know single-celled organisms on other planets uh, that would not bother me in the least and it's super exciting going back and forth between fantasy and sci-fi here uh but we wrap up with this uh, other comment from uh at josiah de graf i really hope i pronounced that part the, the graf part right uh, he's the editor at storyembers.org, and he tweeted from at Josiah DeGraff, and he said, quote, one of the perks of reorganizing my school's library lately has been the ability to catch up on Lorehaven's Fantastical Truth podcast while doing so. Great podcast for fellow lovers of speculative fiction. End quote. We agree, and yet it's really encouraging to hear that. Thank you so much, Josiah. 
And we mentioned before that we wanted to do a regional shout out with each episode. And so our previous one, we uh, said hello to everyone listening in Canada. And today we found out that there are listeners in Australia. So if you are an Australian listener, please send us a message and just say how you're doing and what you've enjoyed so far on the show. We'd love to hear from you. And to all you listeners, please subscribe to Lorehaven, our quarterly magazine. You can go to lorehaven.com. You can get that for free and you can read tons of book reviews that we are putting out every day this summer. And our last issue, the spring 2020 issue, uh, and actually helped inspire this episode because I was uh, cheeky enough to review the Chronicles of Narnia as if it needed my endorsement or any endorsement right now. So my review was more of a retrospective on why Christians should read Narnia regardless of their age. We will link to that in the show notes, and uh, you can also find it by going to lorehaven.com slash reviews. Just search for Narnia in the search bar at the, uh, at the upper right. Uh, that was our spring 2020 issue with the cover story, The Best of Christian Fantasy. But now our summer 2020 issue is out. You can actually get that free at lorehaven.com. And of course, subscribe for free by email. Then you get all of the back issues, including the ones that are still exclusive to email subscribers with the secret password. We don't send a lot of emails, uh, mostly just every quarter right now uh, to let you know when a new issue is coming out. And uh, this summer, we are posting from our massive collection of reviews of the best of Christian fantasy. We're trying to put up a new review every day, actually, going through this summer. Uh, not just a pandemic special, it's just a good time to do that. So check it out at lorehaven.com slash reviews and follow us on all the socials, too. Zach, you already know what's next on Fantastical Truth. Now, we've alluded to it a few times. We have to finish up this series. <laughs> Alas, that we ever thought we could get through seven top myths about the Chronicles of Narnia in a single episode, my stars. So we're going to finish this series with the final four myths and uh, in descending order there, that's the top, uh, that's the top four myths, I think, at least according to my uh, reading order there. We'll go ahead and spill those right now. Uh, the, uh, the first one there, uh, actually number four, is that Queen Susan fell away and will never return to Narnia again. And that's bad. Myth number three is that Emmeth in the last battle reveals that C.S. Lewis was a universalist. Dun, dun, dun. Myth number two, the almost top myth is that the Chronicles portray simple allegories for Jesus and Satan and others. And then the one that I feel is the top myth, Lewis's world is safer for children than other stories that have fantasy magic in them. Don't miss this one. And of course, uh, email us or leave us notes about the myths that uh, you have found about the Chronicles of Narnia. In the meantime, keep loving great fantasy, Lewis's and otherwise, with childlike humility. Long for Aslan's country as we spend eternity on this side of the wardrobe and beyond, seeking and finding fantastical truth. <laughs> <laughs>